Coming up, a wild and crazy NFL Week 1. What did you expect? I'll go around the league with some of the big surprises that took place. Speaking of wild and crazy, it was an intense weekend in Queens as the Mets and Yankees were jawing, almost brawling, scratching and clawing to stay in the pennant race. Speaking of Queens, Novak Djokovic's quest for immortality goes up in smoke as he loses not once, not twice, but thrice in the men's final at the U.S. Open. A major statement for the Oregon Ducks highlights week two in college football. Lots to dive into. You've come to the right place to get your sports fix. I'll have it all for you momentarily, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the Jay Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com. For more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc., I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits, as fall is just nine days away. But the sports world continues to rise and thrive. With edge-of-your-seat thrillers, unexpected surprises, and shocking losses. And that was just yesterday. So here to deliver it all is yours truly, as this is the J-Reels Podcast. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 214 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, September the 13th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J-Reels What's the Deal segment. What's to expect on this podcast is as follows... 
Novak Djokovic, he was the story not only throughout the U.S. Open, but the entire year as he was going for the calendar Grand Slam, the first that would have been able to accomplish it in 52 years, but that was not the case yesterday. I'll discuss his downfall. Not only did he lose once, twice, but three times. And if you can imagine that, well, I'll detail that later on, as well as the women's final, which was an all-teenage final. And congratulations to Emma Raducanu for winning the women's side of the U.S. Open. So I'll have all the tennis later on. I'll get into everything that happened in college football with the Oregon Ducks highlighting everything. A spectacular win in Columbus against Ohio State. How far they moved up in the rankings. A significant jump. We'll touch on the college football later on. The baseball season ends in three weeks. So this time in the first Monday of October, we'll start discussing pennant baseball as far as the playoffs go but right now the races are starting to heat up a little bit and we had a heated weekend out at City Field between the Mets and Yankees also the Dodgers swept away the Padres not much really happening as far as the divisions go but the wild card race is certainly heating up I'll touch on that a little bit later on and also what happened to Evander Holyfield that he had to fill in for Oscar De La Hoya yes you're gonna get my two rusty red cents on that as well as my hero and zero of the week I'm sure the football fan right now is salivating and I'm sure their bellies have been satiated because week one in the NFL was pretty much what you expected and then some. We know that the football season going back to a year ago with COVID and the uncertainty of how this season was going to play out and when we take a look back at last season because of a fragmented schedule at times and no fans in the building And then you had a playoff, which was pretty much lackluster. Let's call it as we see it. We had a handful of games that were very good. A couple in the wild card. We had the thrilling ending there in Green Bay that it boiled down to whether or not they should have kicked the field goal or gone for the touchdown there at 31-23. We know what happened at that point. And then you had a snooze fest of a Super Bowl to where now it seemed as when you Usher in this season, and you look back at what took place there, and I'll start on Thursday because the Dallas-Tampa Bay game set the scene for yesterday and all of its topsy-turviness, if that's a word, and with the Buccaneers being able to not only prevail in the final seconds, of course, when you have number 12, the ageless Tom Brady, a quarterback, is that a surprise? Absolutely not. But when you look at how the Cowboys were cavalier in their approach with Dak Prescott coming back from that ankle injury, the gruesome one that he suffered against the Giants last year and how well he played. And the Cowboy defense where a lot of people thought that that's going to be their Achilles heel. Yes, you did see that. I get a very questionable pass interference call that should have been thrown on Chris Godwin, which led to the game-winning field goal by the Buccaneers there. Ryan Suckup was the hero. But you had a lot of drama Godwin, who made that catch, also could have been the GOAT where he fumbled that ball away at the goal line, had a very up-and-down game, but Brady was Brady, Gronkowski contributed, Antonio Brown looked like his days in Pittsburgh, and they go on to start their defense of the Super Bowl champion that they were last year in winning that opening game against the Cowboys, 31-29. And yesterday, you had a mixed bag. Obviously, when you go into a season, you don't know what you're going to expect because a lot of the starters haven't played in the preseason. And mind you, the country was warm pretty much throughout. 
in the mid-80s here yesterday in New York. So summer looks like it's going to go out like a line. Thank God for that. As I mentioned earlier, the autumn season is just a week from this coming Wednesday. But with warm weather throughout and with teams that you didn't really know who would get off to good starts or teams that were expected to get off to good starts certainly made you scratch your head. So that's going to highlight my winners and losers for the week. And the winners right off the bat in a shocker down in Tennessee was the Arizona Cardinals. They're a team that had a big giant question mark, very competitive division, young quarterback, young coach, Cliff Kingsbury, the coach of the team, knew that he had to not only get his team off to a good start, but if they're going to be mentioned, not only in the NFC West, but just in the NFC, maybe as a dark horse, maybe as a team that's on a come up, having that young quarterback in Kyler Murray and having the weapons there with DeAndre Hopkins, we know about Larry Fitzgerald, of course, who's going to play a smaller role, but obviously we know how much he means to that team and that organization, Sprinkle in a little Chase Edmonds at running back. And what you had yesterday was a five-touchdown performance, four in the air, one on the ground, where Kyler Murray just ran over that Tennessee defense roughshod. And I talked about this over the NFL preview. If you haven't listened to it, please feel free. I get it that week one's already in the book, so ah, why do I need to hear another NFL preview? Well, you'd be surprised at what you may take from it. But with the Titans, even though they were a team I picked as an over this year, and their defense... Uh, very spotty and questionable to say the least, even with Mike Vrabel as a coach, as we all know, one-time linebacker of the New England Patriots. But with the Titans getting off to a slow start, is it more that or Arizona just going in there and blitzing them up and down the field to a 38-13 victory? I think it's more Arizona than it is Tennessee and more on the Titans a little bit later on. My second winner, I'm going to give it to the Miami Dolphins. I understand this isn't the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick team or combination that we've seen in the past. We all know that that's a year and a half removed. And we understand a young quarterback, Mac Jones, going up to under center to be able to now lead this franchise moving forward. But the Dolphins did just enough yesterday. Tua wasn't spectacular. But a road game in the division where Brian Flores, we've already seen the progression of this team ever since he took the helm of the top coach down in South Beach. But you have to give it up. Jalen Waddell with a touchdown reception. Like I said, Tua wasn't spectacular. Their defense was very good. The Dolphins, that is. And they thwarted Mac Jones' debut. They thwarted New England. And a lot of people think that they could be a team that's on the rise, a little bit of a dark horse in the AFC. But they shut that down week one. So kudos to Miami for going on the road. Better to do it now where it's 76, 77 degrees as opposed to doing on the road where it's 35 degrees. So congratulations to the Dolphins for getting themselves off to a good start. Now as far as my losers of the week, how could it not be the Green Bay Packers? All the drama in this offseason, everything that was surrounding Aaron Rodgers from the final play of the aforementioned NFC Championship game to all that took place, whether it was I want to be out of here as far as not being a part of the Packers anymore, not having a say as far as what goes on behind the scenes, whether it's personnel, whether it's certain decision-making from the top, and a little bit of controversy even with his fiance or girlfriend, whomever 
what type of relationship that is between Rodgers and Shailene Woodley. But when the dust settled and training camp started, he was there from day one, made amends, moved on, and in their first game on the road in Jacksonville, and no, not against the Jaguars, but against the New Orleans Saints, they put up a big giant deuce on the 50-yard line there at whatever the name of that stadium, Tia Kreft Stadium, or it used to be Altels, a million names as we know with these stadiums from one year to the next. But for the Packers to be a no-show, I don't know if it was the heat. I don't know if it was just Rodgers maybe being rusty, not getting a chance to play here in this preseason. Who knows? But man, that was a very puzzling start. You lose the game. New Orleans, we know they're going to be competitive. Anytime Sean Payton is going to be the coach, and even with Jameis Winston and what he did, he was 14 for 20, only threw 148 yards in the game, but had five touchdowns. So go figure. So you knew it was that type of day. Rodgers throws two picks where he rarely throws interceptions. His numbers were paltry, to say the least. And the Packers, not the start that they were looking for with all the drama and everything that ensued this offseason. So I'm sure the Cheeseheads in Wisconsin, whoo, Right now, they must be burning up the sports talk lines on the radio stations up there. So, Packers, loser number one. My second loser are the Buffalo Bills. And I'm going to say it for this reason. We get that everything that took place last year, finally making a deep postseason run, getting to an AFC Championship game, and with the Bills Mafia just ready to pack that stadium, to be able to get their season off to a good start. A Steeler team with an aging quarterback. Okay, a young defense that was very stout yesterday. I'll get to Steelers a little bit later on. But for Buffalo to have an opportunity to get a leg up in the AFC, to not only as it is right now, they have a huge game against the Dolphins next week, which is in Miami, and we'll talk about that later on as well. But for them to not be able, maybe there was a little bit of rust there, because a play that gets unnoticed at 3 nothing, he had Emmanuel Sanders open for five yards on a bomb up the seam, overthrew him. If Josh Allen would have made that connection to Sanders for a touchdown, it would have been 10 nothing there in the first quarter, and I think the Bills would have been off and running. As it was, they had a 10 nothing lead at halftime. Imagine if it was 17 nothing. Granted, the game ended with 23 points for the Steelers, but still, you can't look at the game... Overall, you got to look at it for where it is at that time. 17-0 at the half is a lot more daunting than 10-0. And as it was, the Steelers came back in the game. The Bills botched a fourth down. I don't know what that play call was on a fourth and one. They had two fourth downs that they didn't execute on. But that fourth and one, which to me was the biggest play of the game, because the Steelers were unable to get anything mustered as far as offensively goes. But they had a fourth and one, which they threw a reverse going back. I believe it was to Devin Singletary, and then he gets stopped, and then the Steelers took over, and pretty much from that point on, they dictated the tempo of the game, and they leave Orchard Park with a 23-16 victory, which is puzzling because the Bills, who beat the Steelers in that building last year on a Sunday night, and again, that's last year, can't translate it to this year, understood, but a very inauspicious start for the Bills, and it makes you wonder now, is this game upcoming against the Miami Dolphins in the division on the road, a must win for them. I know it's only week two, I get it. But still, you want to have that momentum. You want to be able to get yourself off to a good start. And if you're Sean McDermott, the head coach of the Bills, that was not it. And then briefly, 
the last loser, and I kind of hate to pick a winner who beat a loser in the process because it's all about trying to get that balance to where you're going to pick a winner and not at the expense of this loser segment. But Tennessee, you got to do better than that. And that's all I'm going to leave it up to. Derrick Henry didn't get untracked. I believe he only had a 58 yards on 17 carries. Julio Jones and A.J. Brown, you figured that's going to be the tandem all year long, but they didn't get untracked. Tannehill did not have a good game. And Tennessee has to go back to the drawing board because I don't know if it was the heat. I don't know if they were just unprepared. I don't know what it was. But one thing I do know, that it was not a great start for the Titans to get off their 2021 season the way they did. All right, I'm going to blitz through these games because if I tackle these games one at a time, I'll be here for an hour and obviously I got a lot of the things to discuss. So I'll give some attention to some of the games that were of note and some of the others that are not. And I'm going to say Philly and Atlanta. Now, I'm not going to just slaughter the Falcons as I should because Matt Ryan and company, you think this team, as we know, going back to the Super Bowl there where they lost to New England, they have not been there themselves and they have been a shell right now based on the performance yesterday. But give it up to the Eagles. Jalen Hurts, what a performance there yesterday. 264 yards was orchestrating the offense impeccably. And if the Eagles are going to play like this, chances are they could be the team that could be the NFC East winner when it's all said and done. Granted, we still have 16 more weeks to go. So I'm not trying to champion them in the least because, again, look at the opponent. But a very crisp and... Just flying start for the Eagles as they win 32-6 to down in the ATL. To keep it in the NFC East, the Washington football team did not really show up here yesterday. Even though Justin Herbert, the quarterback of the Los Angeles Chargers, did throw for over 300 yards. But that's pretty much typical in today's NFL. But with Ryan Fitzpatrick leaving the game with a hip injury, you had to bring in Taylor Heineke, he was the guy that, if you remember, in the wild card round against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year, had a very, for him, and for what they were trying to do in that game, was a Herculean effort, and not to say he had to come up with something similar this time around, but did throw a touchdown, no heroics this time around, but the Chargers in a ho-hum 20-16 victory had to fly three time zones east to open up their season and now go back west in which they have the Cowboys coming into their building this week. So the Chargers get off to a good start and the Washington football team, uh uh-uh, not so much. The Giants, what do we talk about in the NFL preview? Big year for Daniel Jones. Fumbleitis continues to be his disease. I'll just call it that. And the Giants, what could you say? They look like they could have a long year offensively and they do have talent. If Saquon Barkley is anything close to his former self to go along with guys like Evan Ingram, Sterling Shepard who had a touchdown there yesterday, they do have some weapons. But Jones has to protect the football in order for the Giants to be successful at any point this year. Their defense should be good. Okay, fine, but you can't expect the defense to pull it out all the time. Yesterday, defense was not great. Teddy Bridgewater, who I also mentioned in the preview, is a guy that... Doesn't make a lot of mistakes. He's pretty much the anti-Daniel Jones when it comes to that. He protects the football. Very careful in his decision-making and the way he passed the football as he had a very good game yesterday. And then the Melvin Gordon 
70-yard touchdown run, which was pretty much the icer of that game, as Denver comes east and beats the Giants 27-13. Now, let me get through a couple of these other games. Jets and Carolina. Sam Donald versus his old team. Donald, not too bad. Very pedestrian when it comes to his numbers. He did connect with a, another former Jet and one Robbie Anderson for a 57-yard touchdown, which I'm sure the Jet fan were crying in their Miller Lights. But give it up, Zach Wilson was under fire all day, was sacked six times, but did show ability and a little bit of escapability. Looks like, not going to get crazy whether or not he's the answer, but he certainly didn't fold under the pressure. One thing for sure, they may lose their left tackle for the season. We have to wait to see what the MRI result's going to be in a one Mackay Becton, which would be not a big loss. It would be an enormous loss, considering they're going to need their offensive line to keep not only Zach Wilson upright, but if their offense is going to do anything this year, as we all know, and you could say that for pretty much all 32 NFL teams out there, but without having that young quarterback protected throughout the course of the year and losing your left tackle, who knows what that's going to bode for a Jet team this year. Two wins, three wins. Wilson's not going to be able to do it all on his own, but nevertheless, you did see some signs. You did see some promise there even with him being under siege by the Panther defense. Jacksonville-Houston, what's there to discuss other than three touchdowns and three interceptions in the debut of a one Trevor Lawrence? But it was the Texans behind Tyrod Taylor, who was steady, 291 yards, very solid in his debut as a member of the Texans. And then the word came out last week that the front office, they're looking for a package for... Quarterback Deshaun Watson, six players, whether it's one player and five draft picks or two players and four draft picks, good luck. Who knows what's going to happen there with Wilson as far as throughout this year. Chances are he's probably not going to play unless Taylor does get injured or I couldn't even tell you who the backup is behind Taylor. But a very surprising start. You figured that Jacksonville would have been a lot better than what they showed here yesterday. We understand Urban Meyer, another rookie coach to go along with his quarterback. Not a great start for those guys, but we will certainly monitor the Deshaun Watson trade rumors. And not to say that any rumors have come about, but we know the die has been cast as far as what the Texans want in return for their benched and embattled quarterback. Minnesota and Cincinnati... Almost came down to a tie. In fact, it's the first time in NFL history that the end of regulation came down to its final play and at the end of overtime came down to its final play for what that's worth. Joe Burrow, in his first action since tearing his knee down in Washington last year, very good, 264 yards. Jamar Chase had a touchdown. little funny exchange there in the postgame because Jamar Chase was having a lot of trouble catching footballs throughout the course of preseason and during training camp. And then Burrow sits down after Chase gets up and walks out of the interview room and he says, who's talking about drops? Or I didn't hear about drops today, paraphrasing of course. So at least for one week, we could put that aside and the Bengals get off to a 1-0 start. And with the Vikings, although Kirk Cousins was very good, over 300 yards in the air, wasn't enough. Who knows what type of season the Vikings are going to have. We know that they have ability, they have talent, but it's a matter of just being all on the same page. And with Mike Zimmer, is the word getting out that maybe the message isn't as clear or it's not coming through to its players? We'll have to wait and see. 
but the Bengals get off to a 1-0 start. The Niners, 41-33 victors over the Lions, where the Lions were down 28 in this game. They were down 38-10. to They had a valiant comeback, but fell short. And I picked San Francisco as my knockout pick, so hooray for me. For the first time in three years, I get to see week two. I know that's no big whoop, but anyway, the Niners and Trey Lance in the first score of the Niners this year threw a touchdown pass, which a lot of people would think, hey, maybe Lance is going to have a lot of, I won't go as far as saying he's going to have his fingerprints pretty much throughout this offense, but you could see that he's going to be implemented maybe as a pseudo Taysom Hill of the New Orleans Saints. We'll see how that experiment goes, but the Niners, after a rough year last year, even in Detroit, a team that's not expected to do much, get themselves in the win column in the Motor City. Seattle, what else is new? Russell Wilson always gets off to great starts. Four touchdowns in his debut here this season over the Indianapolis Colts. I know Wentz threw for a couple of TDs, but the Seahawks, who always get off to good starts, it seems, you never see the Seahawks go 0-2 or 0-3 or start the season off, let's say, like 2-4 and or anything like that. So... Kudos to the Seahawks as they keep pace there in the NFC West because when you think about it, it was a clean sweep for all teams. I mentioned Arizona, of course, San Francisco prior to this, and then now the LA Rams, Matthew Stafford. Boy, if Hollywood could write a script, you couldn't have it any better than yesterday. Three TDs, Sunday night football, the Bears were overmatched. Andy Dalton, let's face it, he's not going to be the answer or the guy. You would think he's going to play this week against his former team in the Bengals but it's just a matter of time before Justin Fields is going to be ushered in and that era will begin but the Rams great start for them so far that beautiful building fans everywhere for the first time and the 34-13 victory to where Stafford and I mentioned if he's going to be the missing piece and if he's going to be the guy that's going to take this team to the promised land then you couldn't get a better start than what you saw yesterday there's still 16 more games to go We know the rigors of an NFL season, but if his presence, his ability, and obviously the relationship that he has with the young Dynamo in one Sean McVay, it looks like that's going to be a very happy and successful marriage. Then you had the Browns going back to Kansas City for the first time. Actually, think about this. The last time these two teams performed was the last time these two teams met up in the division round last year where the Browns suffered a very tough loss, 22-17, to and boy, did they come out a-blazing. Got off to a hot start, led 8 nothing. had a 15-3 to lead in the game, kind of a weird score, almost like an Indians versus Kansas City Royals type game, and then as the game progressed, 22-10, they had a big play there in the third quarter where they took a lead at 29-20, and then you think to yourself, Can the Browns actually leave Arrowhead as well as they played? Whether it was Nick Chubb, who later on had a big fumble, but Baker Mayfield was playing well. No Odell Beckham Jr. as he was inactive. And even with Kareem Hunt making a contribution, Jarvis Landry, Donovan Peoples-Jones, the offense was clicking. And at 29-20, you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, can they actually go in there not only win at Arrowhead, but also put the Chiefs with a little bit of doubt after a Super Bowl hangover that who knows how long that could last considering how awful they were and more so their offensive line in that Super Bowl 55 game. 
Well, here it was. Mahomes on the next play, rolling right, throws across his body, similar to playing in the schoolyard, and wide open was Tyreek Hill as he runs for a 75-yard touchdown. And then that was, to me, one of the biggest plays of the game. But the biggest play of the game was the punt on the ensuing drive that was muffed. The punter wasn't able to get it off. Next thing you know, Chiefs are punching it in. Touchdown, 33-29, and that's your ballgame. And the Browns, a short but tough flight again from Kansas City back to Cleveland. They have to be scratching their heads. They have to wonder what in the hell went wrong there. And again, defensive breakdown. When you have Tyreek Hill, who is probably the most lethal wide receiver in the game, we know about Travis Kelsey and what he does underneath being that security blanket for Patrick Mahomes. But when you look at that breakdown there and for Hill to get that touchdown at that juncture there, because if the Browns, let's say if they were able just to maybe not three and out them, but let's say slow them down, stop them at 29-20, who knows? They go ahead, take a field goal or even a touchdown, that game could be over. But to get them back in the game after that touchdown and then to not do anything on that ensuing drive and for that punt to be muffed by the punter, I tell you, if you're a Brown fan, you got to be sick this morning. And you get it that there's still plenty of season to go. We're just getting warmed up, getting started. But that's the one you wanted. And granted that the stakes weren't the same they were in January as they are here in September. But that would have been just a beautiful way to start off your season. To beat the defending AFC champions and to get your season on the tracks to in all likelihood which is going to be a big year but that would have been nice to put on your calendar and circle a w in arrowhead to start off your season obviously a bitter pill to swallow all right and then quickly with the steelers i'll just say this because i talked about it from the buffalo side and what they were unable to do to win this game pittsburgh ben roethlisberger He's going to be a guy that's going to have to make plays when it really counts. I don't know how much you're going to expect from him. We talked about the offensive line. The Steelers season comes down to those five guys. That's all there is to it. When you have two rookies there and you are going to be able to have to get rid of the ball as soon as possible. And what you saw in the Steelers offense yesterday was similar to what you saw last year. Yes, they did take a couple of shots down the field, but it's going to be a lot of get the ball out of his hands, a lot of bubble, well, not really bubble screens, but it's just going to be a lot of Just wide receiver screens, if you want to call it that. You're also going to try to give the ball to Najee Harris, who got some yards later on in the game, but wasn't really much of a factor. But this defense is going to have to carry the Steelers to victory here. That's all there is to it. Because you got to look at what TJ Watt did coming off of that giant extension. The four years, what is it? 120 some odd million dollars, where 80 million is guaranteed. Record-breaking for the Steelers franchise, to say the least. And guess what? All he did was two sacks, force a fumble, and just be T.J. Watt and do things that T.J. Watt does. And the Steelers, that's how they're going to win these games. Now, they got a huge play at 13-10 from special teams. The block kick there, which was recovered by Ulysses Gilbert III, gets it into the end zone. Obviously, the biggest play of the game. We talked about before how the Bills were unable to get that long bomb to Sanders, which was huge. That would have been... Who knows? Like I said, it could have been 10-0 and then 17-0 at the half. But between that fourth down stop and then to get that block kick at that time of the game was just enormous. Then the Steelers could kind of ease back a little bit and they were able to shut the Bills down 23-16. 
And let's see, Pittsburgh has a hard schedule. They had the Raiders coming in. We don't know what the Raiders are just yet as they played in that against Baltimore. But just a gargantuan win. I think just for the psyche of the team, the offense, again, did not play well. And they got a defensive performance that they're going to need quite a bit throughout the course of this year. But Ben, he's going to have his moments where he's going to have to make plays. And yesterday was not that day. Very pedestrian for him. 18 for 28. I think he only threw 488 yards. They get the touchdown to Deontay Johnson who bobbled it in the corner of the end zone. But you know what? You do not throw wins back, especially in the NFL. And that's what it boils down to. Tonight, Baltimore and Vegas... I don't know. I figured the Ravens are probably going to run roughshod. Now, mind you, we know about J.K. Dobbins out for the year, but they suffered two key injuries just in practice last week. Running back Gus Edwards tears his ACL, and cornerback Marcus Peters does the same. I believe it was on back-to-back plays. And those are two key contributors to their team. I know Le'Veon Bell's on the practice squad for Baltimore. You would think as he gets himself into shape, Whatever last-ditch effort you're going to get from him, considering what's happened here the last couple of years with Bell, I don't know what type of player you're going to get, but I'm sure he's going to be rejuvenated. He's on a good team. They're going to run the ball. We know about Lamar Jackson and what he could do with his legs. I would see Baltimore probably going away in a romp. And as we look at the slate for next week before we move on, week two, the Thursday night game is an abomination. Giants at Washington... Don't even bother. The Monday night game, another abomination. Detroit at Green Bay. Don't bother. Sunday night game, Kansas City at Baltimore. You kind of wish this game was week 8, week 9, week 10. If you remember last year, Casey was at Baltimore week 3. And what did they do? They blew him out of the building in the first half. I believe the score was what, 33-20? But it was 33-10 for a long time. And then they tacked on a couple of scores there late. But you would like to see that game later on, but you're going to see it week two. So that's a very good Sunday night game. And your matchups here this week, nah, nothing really sexy when you look at it. And we get it, not every week could have your marquee matchup or you could get crazy as far as, oh, wow, there are like four, five, six games that are fantastic. The first one that jumps out right now, and only from a standpoint, as I said earlier, Buffalo at Miami. Miami could get a one and a half game lead in the division by beating Buffalo here and Not to say that this is a must-win for Buffalo by any stretch, but you would think that they do not want to go 0-2 and then 0-1 in the division against an opponent like the Dolphins. So that's definitely a game to watch. You want to get crazy about San Francisco at Philadelphia? I'm not. New Orleans at Carolina, I get it. 2-1-0 teams, but I'm not going to be wrapped up in that game. Your 4 o'clock game, which is usually your marquee matchups. Dallas goes, plays the LA Chargers. Not going to go nuts for that. Tennessee, Seattle. Don't really have, you want to say Rams in Indianapolis? No, not here. Talked about Cincinnati, Chicago, New England at the Jets, Las Vegas at Pittsburgh, Denver at Jacksonville, Minnesota, Arizona, Atlanta at Tampa. Not a good week two slate. And with that, before we move on, my knockout pick this week, and only picking this team because losing a tough game on the road and then with the winner having to go on the road after a blowout and somewhat unexpected result yesterday, I'm picking the Browns 
as my knockout pick. Houston is not going to travel up to Cleveland, especially after what the Browns went through yesterday, and they're going to leave, what is that, First Energy Stadium or Cleveland Brown, whatever the name of the stadium is, they're not going to leave Cleveland with a victory there. So I'm picking Cleveland as my knockout pick. And I get people saying, Jay Reels, you can't pick the teams that are destined to have good seasons to pick them so early because you're not going to be able to pick them later on in the year. Well, who am I supposed to pick here? All right, seriously. Am I supposed to look at Denver winning in Jacksonville? Yeah, maybe. But Denver on the road again, they have to come east. I can't trust Denver to win two road games, even if it's against the Giants and Jacksonville. Or am I going to pick even Tennessee at Seattle? I'm not going to do that. Seattle plays well at home. They got the 12th man there. You know, I'm not going to pick Green Bay. I'll save them for later on in the year. So that's why I'm picking Cleveland. And that's what we have there in the NFL. All right, I'll get to the college football a little bit later on. So for the Pigskin fan, hold tight. I'll get to what happened, especially in Columbus with the Oregon Ducks and what they did on the road, which catapulted them into the top five and certainly put a wrinkle when a lot of people think Ohio State could be one of the four Playoff teams, well, that is in instant jeopardy right now considering they play in a conference against Penn State, obviously Michigan, and even though Michigan never beats Ohio State. So we'll touch on that later on. But I want to get to baseball because we have three weeks left in the season. And right now, it's all about the wild cards. You can forget about the divisions. I know that it's close in certain spots. NL East, not even the AL West because I believe the Astros have six and a half game leads over both Seattle and Oakland. And the NL East, I know it's four and a half and five with the Phillies and Mets behind the Atlanta Braves. But other than that, and of course, Dodgers and Giants, which it's pretty much status quo. I get last week, the Giants, after winning two out of three against the Dodgers, had a one game lead. And now that's increased to three games where the Giants over the weekend swept the Cubs and the Dodgers looks like they're getting ready to put the Padres out to pasture for this year, and we'll talk about them in a minute. But with the wildcard races and how they are, I'm going to start it more from both a local perspective, and I get people going to say, oh boy, here goes Jay Reels now with the Mets, and even with the Yankees to a certain extent. Well, that was the most fascinating series over the weekend, highlighted by the game last night, where it was on ESPN, and a lot of back and forth, and with both of those teams right now teetering, And yes, even the Yankees, you got to say teetering because of how the end of their schedule is going to be. This week is fine if you're the Yankees. They have the Twins in a makeup game this afternoon, followed by Cleveland and Texas coming in. But then after that, all right, you have a series against Baltimore. You figure they beat up on the Orioles, right? They have the Red Sox after that. They have... Toronto in Toronto after that before coming home to play Tampa. And I get Tampa is probably going to rest up. They're going to have the division clinched. No problem. But if this means that the Yankees are on the outside looking in and Tampa, as we all know, they don't even need to set up their rotation for October because they have a bunch of bullpen pitchers that pretty much start their games and using openers. You know they're going to do whatever it takes to knock the Yankees out of the postseason if it does come to that in the final weekend of the year at Yankee Stadium. And then with the Mets, they have a very interesting week, and I'll touch on the games. As a matter of fact, let me do that first before I think ahead. So you had a 
Subway Series, which is very rare in September. I remember in 2015, the Mets and Yankees played a little bit later. I think it was the week after 9-11, that 16th, 17th, 18th, whatever it was back in 2005, where the Yankees actually won two out of three. That was the year, of course, the Mets went to the World Series. But this past weekend, the Friday night game was an embarrassment if you're Gary Sanchez. And I'm sorry. I've said this. Check all the receipts. I don't know how much you're going to get back from. I really don't. But if you're Brian Cashman, and I believe Sanchez is a free agent after next year, you got to trade this guy. He is not, I'm not going to say he's not built for New York. I won't go as far as that. He's not built to be on his team anymore. I'm sure as a Yankee fan, yes, you love it when he is streaky and he's hot and he hits home runs in bunches. Other than that, this guy doesn't do anything. He can't defend the plate. What he did Friday night was inexcusable. On the relay to home where he had Jonathan Villar dead to rights and should have been tagged out halfway up the third baseline, he somehow gets under the tag, applies the tag on his helmet as Villar crosses home plate, overruled by the replay. He could have been taken out of the game right there if you're Aaron Boone. But then later on, pass balls, wild pitches, trying to get a play at the plate where I understand Gio Urshela, it was a bad throw, but even in that split second, Sanchez could have got off the bag, caught the ball, and still would have had time to make the tag even if he couldn't get the force at the plate. Terrible job on his part. So, again, I don't know what you could get for him. Maybe you could get a number two, maybe maybe a number three pitcher, depending on how far his stock has fallen here. But I'm sure another young team that could afford him because you're not going to trade him to the Pirates because he's not going to be a one-year rental there. Yankees got to do something with that scenario. So the Mets embarrassed him on Friday. And then Saturday, you had the back-and-forth game where the Mets and Yankees were trading leads. Mets had a 5-0 deficit they had to come out of. They were able to come out of that with seven unanswered runs. And then in an eighth inning where you had Trevor May come in and he gives up a base hit to Gardner, Aaron Judge takes him deep. Then Stanton gets a base hit down the first baseline. You have to take out May, bring in Aaron Loop. And then that's where you get your trick-or-treat Javi, is in Baez, where he hit a home run earlier in the game. But then what could have been an inning-ending double play, he throws the ball 20 feet over the head of Pete Alonso. Velasquez, who came in the pinch run for, I believe it's Tyler Wade, pinch ran for, no, I think it was Velasquez, the shortstop infielder from the Bronx, Came in around the score to make it 8-7. And even though it was a little bit of suspense there in the bottom of the ninth where J.D. Davis hits the double. And if Kevin Pillar would have ran the second that ball got passed, and that was Kyle Higashioka, who made an excellent throw to first base, you would have had first and third or one out, and you would have had some very intense drama because Chapman, as we all know, has been a disaster since the middle of May as being a closer. And they were able to escape that game. And then the game yesterday, what could you say? Back and forth, tooth and nail. Mets down 2-1. Francisco Lindor hits a three-run homer. Then the Yankees claw back a little bit. Gleyber Torres with a two-run homer. What happens? Right side of the plate where in his first home run, Francisco Lindor was batting left-handed. He hits a changeup deep into the center field seats. As he rounds second base, he has a whistle gesture to his mouth. So, to the direction of Gleyber Torres for whatever that was worth or really around home plate as he's heading to home. And then 
the fireworks set off to where Giancarlo Stanton hits a two-run homer as he's rounding second base. He starts drawing at Lindor. Who knows what was said? I'm sure Stanton, to his displeasure, did not like the gesture of the whistling or showboating around the bases. Bench is clear. A lot of chirping back and forth. Nothing came out from that. Now, the reason for that little dust-up was mainly because in the post-game, we heard that Francisco Lindor did not 100% accuse or feel as if the Yankees were trying to steal signs as the night before where Taiwan Walker was the starting pitcher for the Mets. And for whatever the reason, they were stealing signals to where they were using a whistle. So no trash cans or no other devices seem to be used here other than some whistling tactics. So when Lindor went around the bases and did that, Stanton obviously had a couple things to say. That's when the dugouts emptied. And I understand Lindor, he probably shouldn't have said anything. He probably should have just kept it to himself. He felt as if he had to put that out there to show up the Yankees or to try to look at that incident, whether alleged or if it's factual, who knows. But of course, that drew the ire of Stanton and with the benches coming out, and you can understand why, Lindor is a guy who's had a terrible year offensively. He had his shining moment finally, but for the Yankees and the Mets to have that little, this wasn't even a scrum, but to have that meeting there in the middle of the infield or right outside of the pitcher's mound for both Lindor and Diaz to kind of challenge the Yankees, showed a little bit of bravado. If you're a Mets fan, you kind of like that, but at the same time, This could have been prevented if Lindor just kept quiet and not even made this more than what it was. But you like it. It shows a little fire. Has he made peace with the fan in light of what happened a couple weeks ago with the whole thumbs down gate? Of course, the fan's going to go crazy. They're going to look at his heroics yesterday. And again, having that defining moment as a Met, especially coming against the crosstown heated rivals and the Yankees. All right. Clap your hands, tip your cap, did a good job. Maybe you'd like it that he didn't chirp a little bit or do that gesture, whether it's true or not. And obviously in the postgame, he said it wasn't. So we kind of let that go and we move on from there. And then at 6-6, bottom of the eighth inning, what happens? Lindor comes up and he hits a fastball over the right field wall, 7-6. Then you had to sweat through what else is new. Another ninth inning with Edwin Diaz, and thankfully he was successful this time around. And as theater would have it, with a runner on second base, yet first and second, and Stanton coming up. And imagine if Stanton would have hit a home run there. You probably would have had a brawl there in the middle of the diamond, considering that Stanton certainly would have said a thing or two towards Lindor, but that wasn't the case as he popped out, ironically, to Francisco Lindor to end the game. Mets win two out of three. Win the Subway Series this year, four games to two. Lindor, the first player in Subway Series history to hit three home runs in a game, if you want to jump up and down for that. But the Mets, as you wake up this morning, are closer in the wild card than they are in the division. As I said before, they're five games back. But here's the intriguing thing. They have four teams ahead of them in the wild card, even though they are closer to getting that second wild card than they are to winning the division. And then before you start to think, well, wait a minute, yeah, they got all these teams to bypass and leapfrog, etc. Well, guess what? They play two of those teams back-to-back this coming week. 
The Cardinals come in for three starting tonight, and then the Phillies come in over the weekend for three. And you know that the players and especially the fans are going to want some payback because if you remember, the Mets who went into Philadelphia in the first weekend of August with a half-game lead in first place, and they gave it all up that weekend to the point where they've fallen so far to only come back. Remember, they were down eight and a half games in the division. And now that they got themselves back, they are 500. But now we're going to really see what the Mets are going to be made of because I get that two out of threes would be great. During the six-game stretch, they got to win five out of six. Winning series this late in the year aren't going to cut it. Yes, is it going to help them still be mathematically alive? It will. But you're going to have to win at least five of six. Because you don't face the Padres anymore. You don't face the Reds. Now, the Padres do have a tough schedule. And they are falling like a stone in the middle of the ocean. But you don't play the Reds. And we'll take a look at the Reds' schedule as well. And the Cardinals, like I said, you got them right in front of you. And as we look at the wild card standings in the NL East, as it stands, forget about the Dodgers. They have the first spot wrapped up unless they catch the Giants. And then the Giants will have the top spot as far as the NL wild card goes. But right now, you have the Padres... Even with the Reds, percentage points, 521. But because they have one less loss, they currently have the second spot. And I'm sure if it ended up that way, you would have a one-game playoff to see who would play the Dodgers. But then you have the Cardinals just a game back behind the Reds after they played each other over the weekend and won two out of three to pick up a game in the standings. Followed by the Phillies at 72 and 71, two and a half games back. Then the Mets even at 72 and 72, three games back. So if you sweep the Cardinals, let's just say there, and the Phillies play the Cubs at home this week, so you can't really expect much from the Cubs considering they just got whacked behind the woodshed at home by the Giants. But if you could sweep the Cardinals here, of course, you'll just bypass them and put them in your rearview mirror at that point, which would be Wednesday night. And then you have the Phillies come in, and whatever you could do against the Phillies... Hey, you just hope and pray if you're a Met fan. And me, personally, it's a long shot. It's good to know that they are in a race. And this week, it didn't matter who they play. But knowing that you play two teams that are ahead of you in the wild card and that you're closer to a wild card berth than you are to a division. And then the Braves, this week, they have Colorado coming into their building before they go out west. And they do have to play the Giants out in San Francisco. So that could bode well if you are looking at the division. And it doesn't hurt, too, because the Mets still play the Braves the final three games of the year in Atlanta, I might add. But in eight of their last 11 games on the road for the Mets. And we all know the Mets are far from road warriors. So these home games are just of the utmost importance for them to win. So we'll see... What happens with the Mets here over the course of this week? And as far as the Yankees go, when you wake up this morning, the Yankee fan isn't happy because after winning 13 straight games in that four-game series, the first two in Oakland to get themselves to a Baker's Dozen, since then, they have just been a free fall of their own. Remember, they had lost the last two games to Oakland in that series. They lost the first two games to Anaheim before Garrett Cole... Pulled them out of the fire, just what a stopper does, and wins that 
final game to salvage that series. They come home to lose the, to win the opening game against Baltimore, only to lose the back two to the Orioles. A week ago today, I was talking about how, hey, if Toronto sweeps, they could put themselves in a position where their percentage points behind the Yankees, but it'd be a long shot. Huh, was I wrong about that? Toronto not only just swept them, not only just embarrassed them, but to the point where the Yankees didn't even have a lead throughout any of those four games. And that was the first time that happened to the Yankees since 1924 that they did not have a lead in a four-game series against any team. The lost Friday night to the Mets. Then they finally get in the win column, as we talked about before, and then they lose last night. This week, they could feast. And who knows with this Yankee team? We know they're Jekyll and Hyde at this point. You don't know what team you're going to get here. But the Yankees, they have it in front of them. Like I said, Minnesota. Then they have Baltimore. They go to Baltimore first. I have it mixed up with the schedule. Then they have Cleveland this weekend, Texas, before going to Boston, Toronto, and Tampa. So we'll see what happens. And then Toronto, after winning a football score of a game yesterday, and even though they lost and snapped their eight-game winning streak in that opening game against Baltimore on Friday, they swept a doubleheader on Saturday. They won 22-7 to yesterday. And now they have the Rays coming to Toronto, which will be an interesting series, followed by Minnesota at home before going to Tampa and Minnesota for four. And then they wrap up against the Yankees and Baltimore at home. So it's all right in front of them. Tampa, not going to be easy, but they do have seven games with the Twins, which you think that they're going to feast on them. And then Baltimore to wrap up the year with the Yankees, the series before that. Red Sox, who lost Chris Sale, who's on the COVID list. So the Red Sox are ahead of the Yankees, as well as Toronto, as we've talked about here. Tampa, you can forget about the division, I won't even talk about them. But the Red Sox go to Seattle in a huge series because Seattle, they're also in the mix too as well. I'll go through the standings there in a minute. So they go out West to play a series after they just finished the series in Chicago. Then they'll have Baltimore at home followed by the Mets for two games, Yankees. Then they close out on the road at Baltimore and Washington. So tricky schedule here going to Seattle. Softens up a little bit with Baltimore, Mets, eh, Yankees, and then Baltimore and the Nationals. And we already talked about what the Yankee schedule is down the stretch. As far as Seattle and Oakland, as we take a look at the standings, and we'll go through their schedule in a second. So with the Blue Jays and Red Sox, although percentage points even, but the Blue Jays have one less loss, 80-63, Red Sox 81-64, Yankees 79-64. Seattle and Oakland, both even, 77-66. and And the Mariners this week, Of course, they have the Red Sox coming into their building, which would be not only just a big test, but could determine whether or not they stay afloat here in this wildcard race. They have the Royals that they go to over the weekend. So they host Boston, then they go to Kansas City, and then to Oakland for four after that. So they'll follow up after that with series at Anaheim, and then they host both Oakland and LA to close out their season. So even after the Red Sox, they go to Kansas City, so it softens up a little bit before the big four-game set, which could pretty much knock each other out of the wildcard mix. And then Oakland, funny enough, they go to Kansas City, so KC hosts both Oakland and Seattle this week, followed by a series in Anaheim, and then the series next week at home where they have Seattle for four, Houston, and then Seattle and Houston. So Oakland has a very, 
tough stretch to close out the year. So you would think that Seattle with a little bit of an easier schedule. They do have Oakland in front of them. And the Red Sox don't play the Yankees, of course. All these teams still in the mix. Oakland with a harder schedule. Yankees schedule a little suspect, especially at those, those last nine games of the year. And of course, we're going to follow this right down to the bitter end. Like I said, three more weeks. Three weeks from today, we'll be starting to talk postseason as October is on the horizon. Two more quickies before college football. One, the Brewers set the record for most no-hitters in a season, which eclipsed, I believe, 19, excuse me, 19, 1884 was a year where there were eight no-hitters. And on Saturday, you had Corbin Burns and Josh Hader combined for a no-hitter against the Cleveland Indians. So I understand. Doesn't have the same sex appeal as if a starting pitcher pitched nine innings and got the no-hitter all on his own. But it counts in the record books as a no-hitter. Whether Burns pitched five innings and then Hader the next four, it's still a no-hitter. So count that in the books as the Brewers are cruising to an NL Central title. And then for the Met fan out there, Tomorrow night, ESPN, you know I'm going to be all over this. Once Upon a Time in Queens, back-to-back episodes, tomorrow night and Wednesday night. Actually, they're two two-hour specials. I believe they're in four parts. So you have part one, I guess from 8 to 9 o'clock, and then part two, 9 to 10. I believe it starts at 8, and then the same for Wednesday night. Now, of course, the 86 Met team is near and dear to me without getting fully into it. But I wonder how much... Do I need to know about this team that I don't already know? So you wonder if there are going to be any nuggets that come out of this. And I know about it all. And in 30 seconds or less, we could talk about 84, which is going to be pretty much the starting point. I would think they'll go before that, how awful the Mets have been, 70s into the 80s, and then the Keith Hernandez trade, 83. You know they're going to talk about Doc Gooden's rookie season, 84. You're going to have Gooden's great 85 all-time Season that he had 24 and 4 with a 1.53 ERA. Gary Carter <clears throat> coming onto the scene from a member, uh, formerly of the Montreal Expos, in that trade. And then 86, everything that happened there. Davey Johnson saying, This is our year. The four game sweep in St. Louis. Early April, when they lost the year before the division to the Cardinals. I'm sure you're going to hear about Ponscum from the Houston faithful down there where. Ron Darling, I believe Bobby O'Heat and a couple of the guys got into a bar brawl down in Houston to everything that happened in the 86 season. And I'm sure maybe they'll talk about a little bit after the 86 season too. The downfall, 87. Doc, 88. You want to talk about Dodgers, Mets with Socia and Gooden. Who knows? But I'm sure it's going to be entertaining to say the least. And I'll be on top of that, as you well know. All right, now let's turn our attention to college football as the big... News of the weekend came out of what happened in Columbus, Ohio. The Oregon Ducks, who had to come east a couple of time zones, early 12 o'clock game, Fox. And a lot of questions were answered as far as the early part of this college football season when we're going to look at this big picture for the college football playoff. Because a lot of people thought Ohio State, Ryan Day, the coach, thought that they would be part of this mix throughout the course of the year and you would think it's still early a lot could happen we understand but playing in the Big Ten and we know about the stout opponents that are in that conference for them to lose this game to Oregon I have to say right now they just pretty much threw their national championship hopes away or at least the college football playoff hopes away and 
I know it's going to be unpopular in the Midwest, especially in the Ohio region. Jay Reels, what are you, nuts? This is game two. How can you just throw them out of the mix? Just like I said. All right, Michigan, they always destroy. Fine. This will be the one year that Jim Harbaugh will get the last laugh and they'll beat Ohio State with the one loss on the docket up until that game in late November. But with Penn State on the schedule, with Wisconsin on the schedule, and who knows anywhere in between the Purdue's of the world who could probably pull off an upset. I don't know where the game is played, whether it's in Purdue or, or at Purdue, I should say, or in Columbus. But I'm going to say that Ohio State is not going to be part of the Final Four come mid-December. And they blew it here by losing to the Ducks. Wonderful job by then. Coach Mario Cristobal, we all know him from his Miami Hurricane days. And the quarterback, C.J. Stroud, what could you say? 484 yards, just a stupendous performance by him and by the Duck team. After the game, they actually left a Duck at midfield. Kind of like what happened there years ago when Oklahoma, if you remember, went to Ohio State and Baker Mayfield stuck the flag right there at midfield. Well, a little bit more subtle, actually a lot more subtle, but just having that duck there at midfield, I thought that was just a nice way to put a finishing touch on a 35-28 victory by the Ducks. And they've catapulted themselves early, still a lot to be played, but for them to be now ranked number four, to go from 12 to four and jump eight spots, that is enormous. I mean, what could you say? And they've already put themselves, not necessarily in the college football playoff mix, because you know the Pac-12 could be interesting too. Not that there are a lot of powerhouses out there, but I know Arizona State's played well, but you figure Oregon's going to be successful there. We still got to see what USC is going to do against them. We Still a lot of football to be played here. But you have to give it up, at least for this week, to make that trip. Granted, it wasn't 3,000 miles, but for them to play in that building, for them to come away victorious, upends the college football landscape, at least for the early part of the season, because for right now, you just got to put Ohio State in the back burner. That's all there is to it. And then you also have to look at what Iowa's done, beating Iowa State as the in-state rivals in a... I didn't watch the game, so I didn't really follow it too close. But they were able to come away victorious and move themselves up in the rankings there from where they were in the, I think they were in the teens to not, no, they were actually, early last week they were 18, they moved up to 10 prior to the game, and then now they're ranked 5th in the country. So give it up to both Iowa and Oregon for putting a little wrinkle just three weeks into a college football season. Those are pretty much your games of note. I understand that Arkansas ambushed Texas and romped them 40-21. to 21. I actually saw a bit of that game early on and what the Razorbacks were able to do to the Longhorns. Even Stanford trouncing USC. I know we just talked about them a second ago. And it was indicative when you look at the first play of the game where the kicker was thrown out of the game for targeting on the opening possession of the game, and if that didn't rile up the Stanford Cardinals to, and the game wasn't even close. I know it was 42-28, but at one point it was 42-13. So Stanford was able to bust some chops and lick their chops along the way to be victorious down in Southern California. 
What could you say about FSU losing at home to Jacksonville State of all teams? All right, they were valiant in a comeback against Notre Dame there the previous Sunday night. Fall short, but no excuse here as coach Mike Novell, he even said that this was totally unacceptable. And mind you, now that I think about it, going back to the Oregon game against the Buckeyes, they were out two of their top defensive players on top of that, so that also adds another element there to how big that was of a victory for Oregon. Michigan beats Washington, who lost to Montana the week before. I don't know if that's anything to get crazy about, but if you're Michigan, you take your wins now and hopefully build some momentum as you get deeper into the year and maybe shock the world and finally, when the opportunity comes against Ohio State, wins that game because even if Michigan, and you know they're going to get a bowl somewhere along the line, even if their record is 7-5, and five, but if they were to beat Ohio State, that's all that really matters when it comes down to college football. So you have that. And then that was pretty much it for your games this week. I know Notre Dame had to thwart a comeback by Toledo of all teams where Jack Cohn had a dislocated finger threw a touchdown pass in the final minute where Toledo were trailing and then they came back to take the lead there late but then Notre Dame came back and won. So when we wrap up our top 10, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, all right, the usual suspects at top, but then Oregon, Iowa, followed by Clemson, Texas A&M, who lost their quarterback to Colorado with a lower body injury, so that's something to keep an eye on there for the Aggies down there. And then Ohio State, Penn State will wrap up your top 10, and then you have Florida and Notre Dame as 11 and 12. We all know that they could thrust themselves back into the top 10, depending on what these other teams do here over the course of the next couple of weeks. And when we look at the Week 3 slate, Nothing really to get crazy about. I know there are a couple of good games. Alabama goes to the Swamp to play Florida. Let's see what Florida does. A lot of people are going to think back to that SEC championship game. Kyle Trask and how good that was. Tooth and nail to the end. Obviously, those cast of characters aren't going to be there. But let's see what the Gators could do down in Gainesville against the champions and the Crimson Tide. Oklahoma, Nebraska, we all know that's a rivalry that goes back a million years. But Nebraska, as we all know, falling on hard times. They're not really the same team that we've come to know and love when it comes to college football. And then you have Auburn going up against Penn State. as That should be a very good matchup. But other than that, that's pretty much what you have in college football here week three. Nothing else to really sink your teeth into or get crazy about. You know, Michigan State, Miami, I'm not going to look at that and say, ooh, yeah, let's keep an eye on that one. So that's what we have there with the college football. Now we had a very interesting week of tennis and especially the last two days, Saturday and Sunday, when we look at the titles for the men's and women's side. And I'll start with the women's here with the U.S. Open as we close out the final Grand Slam event for the tennis season. You had two teenagers go up against one another in the final where you had Layla Fernandez, who went through the gauntlet, when you think about it, beating Naomi Osaka, beating Angelique Kerber, beating Zvitolina, the number five ranked tennis player in the world, to get to the final where she went up against Emma Raducanu, who pretty much breezed. Now, mind you, she had to qualify to get into the U.S. Open. She was ranked 150th in the world, 
Layla Fernandez was ranked 73rd. So with Raducanu, who, okay, had an easier side, had a, like I said, a breeze, but considering that she won in straight sets all the way to the final, and as she gets to go up against the 19-year-old or just turned 19-year-old Layla Fernandez and Raducanu is 18, your first teenage matchup in quite some time. I can't remember off the top of my head when the last time you had the two. I think it was Serena Williams and Martina Hingis. What year that was? 2000? No, I think it was 99. 1999 that was. Between those two. So now you have this matchup where how could you not root for either one of these women? I'm sure maybe you're familiar or a little bit more familiar with Fernandez being Canadian and not only that, but beating Osaka, Kerbers, Vitalina along the way where Raducanu didn't really beat anyone close to that ilk. But here it was, Saturday, your final, and Raducanu wins in straight sets. I know Fernandez played well, had her moments where she was trying to make a comeback, but Raducanu was just, I'm not going to say dominant, even though she did win in straight sets, but she was the better player. She is your U.S. Open women's champion, and congratulations to her. Actually, the first British woman to win a Grand Slam since 1977. Virginia Wade was the last one to do that. And the last one to also win a U.S. Open from the other side of the pond was Virginia Wade, 1968. So, a little bit of history along the side of the British player. And Raducanu does that on the women's side. And then what could you say about yesterday's men's final? Was it... Daniel Medvedev's dominance and how he's performed throughout this tournament or did Novak Djokovic run out of gas and did the pressure swallow him up here to the tune to where he was bounced in straight sets 6-4-6-4-6-4 you saw the frustrated the unforced errors the slamming of the racket where a lot of people can't embrace the Joker and when you see that type of display and you see that type of Let's just face it, unprofessionalism on his part. And granted, he was frustrated with his own play, slamming the racket the way he was, cursing at himself. You don't like the histrionics. You get it. You got the booze that came down from the Arthur Ashe Stadium faithful, if you want to call it that, to the displeasure of his behavior there on the court, which I can understand. And I get it. You can be frustrated, angry, mad. But to have that type of display, Novak... Uh uh-uh, not good but I don't know if all that combined and remember he had to beat Alexander Zverev on Friday in five sets although he did have a 2-1 set lead going into the fourth set but then it was prolonged there where Zverev won the fourth set and then it wasn't until Djokovic there late on Friday night was able to move on to face Daniil Medvedev in the final. And again, was it pressure? Was it the turnover from Friday late night to Saturday at four in the afternoon? Or Sunday, excuse me. Who knows, but he did not play well. And Medvedev was the champion. First time ever, a Grand Slam victor. And it was good to see Medvedev win. And he beat Djokovic fair and square. No excuses, no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. But here's the thing. Djokovic lost three times here yesterday. Really four if you want to even include his behavior. But not only did he lose the U.S. Open, 
He ended up an opportunity to lose immortality by winning the calendar Grand Slam, which would have been the first time in 52 years that we haven't seen a man do it on the tour. And then lastly, lost the opportunity to surpass both Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal as far as all-time men's Grand Slam wins. Because remember, they're all tied at 20. He would have won yesterday. So that trifecta went by the board. And Djokovic, I didn't watch any of his post-game match interviews so I don't know I'm sure he probably gave it up for Medvedev and knew that he was the better player that day but for Djokovic to come that close and who knows when we're gonna ever see a man on the tour go ahead and win a grand slam calendar year scenario I wanted to see him do it I want to see history and I do like Djokovic's toughness I do like his tenacity. I love his ferocity, his intensity. I love all that. But when you see the display yesterday of that, the ugly side, that's why people look to Roger Federer or even Rafael Nadal and they have more admiration for them than they do Djokovic. And the popularity of those two guys are going to pale in comparison to a guy who I think Djokovic is the greatest player, men's player of all time. And listen, not that I'm watching every single match, not that I'm into every one of his matches that he's played throughout the course of his career, but when you follow the sport, especially when you follow the majors and you see how well he's performed and how dominant he's been, I mean, how could he not? And that's not to knock Federer or Nadal by any stretch, but, and I get, this is an argument for another day because people will say, oh, he's not the all-time great because he didn't surpass them or he didn't get the calendar grand slam. Well, Federer and Nadal doesn't have a calendar Grand Slam either. So we can't get crazy. And we know that there's still a little bit more length in Djokovic's career than it is for Federer for sure and Nadal as well. So you got to keep that in mind. Because when it's all said and done, he's probably going to win 25 Grand Slams before he goes off into the sunset. But I thought tennis won this week. Now I get it. The tennis fan, they're going to be the one to rejoice or the diehard sports fan like myself because other than that, 98% of the sports fans out there did not pay attention. But unfortunately, that's just how the sport is. What more could you say? So congrats to Medvedev on what he did. Just stellar on his part. Phenomenal job in striking down the threat of immortality by the Joker, Novak Djokovic. All right, one last note. I won't get into, not really to get into with basketball. I know you had the Hall of Fame ceremony over the weekend, which I didn't watch. I'll get to watch it this week. Maybe I'll talk about it next week. Where Paul Pierce, Chris Bosh, and Chris Weber headlined the enshrinement of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. And then uh, not much to talk about in hockey. I know Sidney Crosby is going to be out for at least six weeks with wrist surgery. So... Right now, it looks like he's not even going to start the regular season. He's probably not going to get on the ice till late October at the earliest from what the reports say in regards to the surgery. But I'll close out with this. Now, last week we talked about Oscar De La Hoya when he contracted COVID because as serious as that was for him, as he videotaped himself on a hospital bed, saying how much COVID sucks, I'm going to bounce back, so on and so forth, whatever. But then, this fight that he had with Vitor Belfast, or I was saying his name wrong, 
Vito Belfort that the fighter that was going to fill in for De La Hoya was none other than Evander Holyfield, who was a few weeks away from his 59th birthday. So what happens? Holyfield, well, I don't even know if he's in any shape or he's been fighting or if there's a comeback on the horizon. Who knows with these boxers? All that happened there on Saturday for the 16 people that watched this thing was Belfort, one minute and 49 seconds into the first round, TKO over Holyfield. I didn't even watch any highlights. I couldn't be bothered. The only reason why I bring it up is because I brought this up last week. And for those who may have been wondering, wait a minute, Holyfield had a fight this weekend? And am I hearing things, seeing things? Is this true? Yes, unfortunately it is true. But Belfort, who is a former MMA fighter, disposed of the aging, I don't even want to say ageless, I guess he's ageless in life, but for him to get back in the ring, I don't know, that was just a mess, but for anybody that watched this thing, I don't care if you paid for it, if you paid for it, you're off your rocker, but even if you streamed it for free on some website, you still got to get your head examined, why would you even watch this is beyond me, because they could have fought in my living room, I would have been, good night, turn off the lights and I'm in the bedroom, who would want to watch this thing? I understand maybe for the MMA fan because the undercard had Anderson Silva go up against Tito Ortiz and those guys were behemoths in the sport when they were in the MMA game. But remember, this is boxing. Well, that wasn't any better because Silva knocked out Ortiz 81 seconds into the fight and that was a knockout. That wasn't a TKO. I mean, that was just a complete bang down to the canvas. He went and goodnight the lights. So for the fight fan, I know you may be hungry desperate and just wanting to watch anything to have two combatants in a ring go at it but geez did you really have to sit and watch this thing oh my god with that said people let me get to my hero and zero of the week my hero of the week goes to dodger pitcher max scherzer yesterday went into the eighth inning with a perfect game ended up giving one giving up a hit there seven and the thirds as he recorded this 3,000 strikeout of the game, struck out nine in the game, eight innings pitched, gave up the one hit. And Scherzer, who I'm sure has found the fountain of youth, leaving Washington in that trade right at the deadline with Trey Turner, thrust in a pennant race, goes ahead, and again, it was against the San Diego Padres, and we know that they're slipping and fading fast. But nevertheless, 3,000 strikeouts, he's on his way to the Hall of Fame. And I know the Met fan must be saying, Jay Reels, why are you giving this guy any credit? Well, what is he, 36 years of age, and he's still pitching at his... Peak, give it up. Max Scherzer, you're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Gonzaga coach Mark Few, who was caught with a DUI on Monday in Idaho at a fancy resort where police got word that Few was driving erratically and speeding and was pulled over. Alcohol levels were high. I get it that you had a couple drinks and you feel you could drive. Come on. You're a coach of a top-ranked and made it to the championship game last year before losing to Baylor. But if you're on vacation at a resort and you have to drive while drinking, and Eve apologized and knew had a lapse of judgment and should have been better at that and so on and so forth, then okay, he did apologize, I get it, but come on, man. No need for you to get behind the wheel even after one beer. But... A little bit more than that. So Mark Few, sorry my guy, you are my zero of the week. 214, episode almost in the books. As always, people, I thank you for 
not only taking the time out of your day to download, stream, listen to what it is I have to say about the world of sports, but I do not take your participation for granted because I know that there are a zillion outlets, a zillion things to consume when it comes to content. And if this is your first time here, again, thank you very much. And if you've been one of my faithful for God knows how long, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I do not take your dedication in following me and the podcast for granted. As I said at the top, and I'll briefly state now, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you haven't done so, throw me a few stars, throw me a review. Whatever you think about the J Reels podcast, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it only because it's going to increase the visibility, as we all know, and I'm trying to get some guests here. So the more reviews I get on wherever you get your podcast, I would sincerely and thankfully appreciate that. If you want to hit me up, question, comment, criticism, praise, you could do so at any of the following social media accounts, Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels podcast, Twitter, J Reels 1, just the number, Facebook, the J Reels podcast fan page, and by email, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to hit me up. I'll be sure to follow back at you ASAP. And lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, it will go to the production of this podcast, whether it's the upkeep of the website, production, equipment, you name it. It's all going to this because whether you do or do not know, sports from birth has been my love, has been my passion. I've been doing this for 214 episodes. I plan to do it for 2,214 more or as long as the good Lord has me on this planet because whether it's sharing my opinions, thoughts, analysis, to vent, to praise, to criticize, whatever it is, on anything and everything that goes on, the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.